Hello. Happy New Year. So we're now um, at the last recording of the year we're at, Graham. Um, it's gone by in a whiz. We're going to dwell, dwell on that beyond a, perhaps a little look at a, a few favourites of mine. But let's, if we may, initially go in with um, specific topics to look at. The first of which, I think, is just the latest on the Edinburgh International Film Festival and the future of the Edinburgh Film House and the Centre of Moving Arts in Scotland, which has been an ongoing saga. Um, well, it, it happened in it October. It sounds more suddenly. positive. That's the only note I've got, that it sounds more positive. What, what have you heard at this stage? Well, there's been a lot of activity since October when the charity behind it, Edinburgh National Film Festival, which is the world's oldest continually running film festival, except 1947, it, it ceased training ceased training the charity behind it. And then at the same time, Edinburgh Filmhouse, it's based, the great Our House Cinema, the building is put up for sale. So it all looked pretty bad. But since then, you've had a crowdfunding campaign yep. launched, which as of early December had raised £170,000, which is quite a lot. Mm. So it's probably much higher now than then. You also had a rescue bid mounted by a Scottish bloke, Gregory Lynn, who owns the Prince Charles Cinema in London's West End. Uh, and he, he made a bid he made a bid to buy them a film house. And he said that there there were at least fourteen other bids and he was basically just knocked back, even though it was a reasonable bid, because the other bids offer more money. And he says that's because the amount of money he can make out of a cinema by showing films isn't the same as turning it into a hotel or building apartments. So he just got blown out of the water. So that's sort of that's sort of a bit negative. And then on top of that, you also had Creative Scotland, which is in the past has subsidised the film, the film festival, mm. it got a massive budget cut from the Scottish government of around mm. £7 million. But it's decided to raid its own reserves to try and keep arts organisations and venues afloat, which is sort of positive, but you can't do it in the long run. It'll, it'll go bust itself if it carries on that. So I suppose the only bit of real positive information I've heard is that Screen Scotland, who are important players in Film industry in Scotland has purchased Edinburgh National Film Festival's IP, its intellectual property, Good. from the administrators. So it owns the domain name and the brand assets, which means it set itself up to be a future operator of the festival. So that is a positive step. What do you, what do you know, Charles? I, I don't. I don't know more more than that. I mean, that I think is the more likely of the two things to happen if we're going to be realistic about this, is the protection of the future of the festival. The harsh commercial realities, rotten as they are, is that a building is more likely to make more commercial revenue with other opportunities than film, despite the fact that this is one of the most famous cinemas in the world, which it is, it is, it is the home of the festival, really. That's the heartbeat of the festival. There's literally and been thousands of famous directors and stars. Absolutely. I've been in that cinema and, and sat in the cafe and had a drink. So how many, how many more flats do we need in, 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 in the well, city? Exactly, yeah. This also, is where it's that, so frustrating. Yeah. But we know that, that owners logic, do not have a conscience all, about this. They just don't have a conscience. Would be at risk. 
Yeah. Mm. But there's also another problem. I also read Screen International, which is fantastic movie magazine has been going for an awful long time. Yes. I used to buy it every week. Uh, it said as early as 2015, Edinburgh Film House was in trouble. And wait for this one. This is quite shocking. I read it in Screen mm. National. The reason Edinburgh Film House, with its great pedigree in, fil- in art house cinema, independent films, was in trouble was because it was no longer getting access to new art house films on their first week of release. So films like Birdman, Whiplash, Carol, mm. Spotlight, mm. Calvary, they were mm. having to wait anything between three and six weeks to get to screen those films in the Edinburgh Playhouse, which obviously hurts your revenue greatly. And that, that's been going on for quite a while. Do we know now, the reason? Because Do we know the reason I, for that? The Screen National didn't go into that, but I can only surmise, or, or rather guess, that's, the, that's the, the honest word for it. I'm going to guess that when you've got cinema chains like Picture House and Everyman, mm. they insist on getting those films first. And since they're a chain with more cinemas than Edinburgh Film House, which is totally independent and standalone, yes. although yeah. it was paddling to Aberdeen and Glasgow Air, they, they obviously di- didn't get it. And, and how can an art house cinema survive if it can't even get art house cinema films mm. on the week of release? It's just ludicrous. I mean, the, ca- the cameo, am I right in thinking cameo is part of the Picture House chain? Is that right? I think so, yeah. Yeah. So they probably or would be able Curzon? to. I get these things. Which is now, part, which is now, oh, it could be Curzon, couldn't it? But again, they probably get prior access to these films than the, than mm. the film house. But of course, yeah, but these days it's all digital. Mm. But in, yeah. in the old days, film distributors had to print copies of the film yeah. to give to cinemas around the world, yeah. which is expensive. So in those days, it was a there was a problem of getting access because there was only so many actual films printed. But mm. now it's all digital, so there's no practical reason no. why the distributors couldn't give independent standalones. Let them film house to film at the same time. It's pure money again. It is. I mean, uh, I was counting the number of screenings at View Cinemas on mm-hmm. one day, which I think was just, I think it was just after Christmas, might even have been Boxing Day. Uh, how many screenings of the second Avatar film do you think took place in one day? Eight. 21, Graham. Starting at, nine, on starting at Sorry. nine o'clock in the morning. Mm, dear, so the oh message dear, here oh is that if they really want to push something that's commercial, they'll go all all hell, hell on to make sure that they do that. Mm. And they absolutely maximise it beyond all logic. 21 screenings of that film. It's already, it's already passed. No wonder it's, extraordinary no wonder it's been a hit. In America, hasn't it? It's had rotten yeah. reviews, sunk with, that, you know, sunk with that a trace amongst the reviewers, uh, but the reviews <laughs> are being ignored. Well, yeah, the audience can watch what it wants. You can't tell the audiences. Yeah, but on the other hand, well, I I agree with that, Graham, but on the other hand, its choice would be useful. 21 21 screenings of that film meant, surprise, surprise, that at view there wasn't a single screening of an art house film anywhere to be seen that day. Not not even at at nine o'clock in the morning when, oh, no, that's the time to go and see Avatar. Yeah, well, COVID's the gift that keeps on not giving. So since audiences haven't returned to cinemas like before in the same numbers, Everybody's feeling the pinch in the film industry, and there's been there's been very few big hits from Hollywood mm. this year. Very few indeed. I mean, one of the few ones has been Top Gun Maverick. Yeah, it's been the biggest performing film That's of the year. Been by far the biggest success Absolutely. story. But there's been lots of great films of flop. Like she said, made a pitiful mm. return, and she it said it's a really good film. It did, and and I sadly haven't managed to see it, and it's now of course disappeared. 
<clears throat> there was an article in The Guardian today, Graham, um, just outlining films for 2023. And it's looking hmm. a strong, strong start to the year. Uh, and not just, oh. not obviously, you know, into the year we go, there'll be the usual Marvel movies and whatever. But there's a new Scorsese film this year with De Niro and, and DiCaprio coming out. Um, really? It looks a pretty strong uh, lineup of, of maybe films that aren't going to be huge blockbusters by any means, but, but are more likely to be in the running for the Oscars, which is a familiar story at the start of the year. When they pitch the films in, that that uh, so they they're oh, fresh in the fresh seasonal. in the memory. As, as you know, cinema releases are very seasonal. Yes, it's the same pattern of the year, isn't it? It is. So it is it a film or a crime film by any chance? The new Scorsese. I think I think that's right. I don't sadly have it to hand. It's set in the nineteen twenties. Set in the nineteen twenties. I, I know that. Um, I should have written this down, really, but but anyway, we yeah. can probably look look ahead um, to some of the highlights that are coming up um, in, in in an imminent uh, edition. Um, Graham, um, it's uh, end of the year always seems to be maybe it's logical that people die in December. I don't know, but obviously we've just had Pelé and uh, uh, Dame Vivian um, um, uh, Westwood this this very um, just yesterday. But I think um, we Martin ought Duffy. to look at Terry Hall, someone who we have both. Uh, been huge fans of, and it's a cliche term to talk about huge fans, but the influence of Terry Hall probably, actually it's taken his death in many ways, and it's often the case that this happens, it's taken his death to realise just how much he was a figure that was treasured and was seen as so mm. important, uh, and yet, and yet, as I say, as ever, it's taken, it's taken his death and his sudden passing at 63 from pancreatic cancer to actually put him where he should be, not just as a, as yeah. a singer, but, but also as a, a, as a lyricist, although the best known of all, Ghost, Ghost Town, that song, of course, was lyrics by Jerry Dammers, not, not by Terry but yeah, Hall, but the, but the way I've he sang them, Charles. the way, the way he yeah. sang them oh, made yeah, such yeah. an impact. Yeah. Graham. He was, the, he was the perfect front man because yes. since the lyrics meant something and since the band was quite an effervescent band musically and mm. in personality, his deadpan honesty, his complete purity was just right for the band. Mm. So he played mm. a crucial role in the band and he also resurrected them a few years back, not that long ago, very successfully without Jerry Danvers, the main songwriter. So Hats Off to him and, and Fun Boy 3 were great and Colourfield were great. But I'm getting slightly annoyed that amount of people who should mm. know better mm. in amusements who are talking about his lyrics all the time in the specials, because I looked into this properly and his songwriting contribution to specials was actually quite small. Yeah. There's there's a few co-writes, few co-credits. There's a few songs that are credited to the whole band, the specials. Yeah. There's very few songs that are outright. Terry it was Hall's largely songs. it was largely Jerry so, Dam. Was Linville Golding, of course, yeah. wrote Wide, didn't well, he? For yeah. One of their Rat, rat race, body radiation, do mm. nothing. Linville yeah. Golding and Jerry Dammers. Most yeah. of the rest, Jerry Dammers. The the one really great song that Specials did that was just Terry Hall was Friday Night Saturday Morning, which yeah. is a great track, the B side of, of Ghost Town, which yes. Damon Alburn formed acoustically in, in tribute to him mm. after his passing. But mm. when 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 Terry Hall left the band and Jerry Dammers carried on within the studio in nineteen eighty four, mm. which is a brilliant album. It, it's it's just as good as anything special did, and there's no Terry Hall there whatsoever. No. So he was a perfect frontman for the specials, but the actual musical lyrical side of the band was mainly Jerry Dammers and other band members with, it was. with Terry I mean, chipping in. 
the the, the focus has obviously been on the specials partly because of the impact at the time and partly because of the renaissance of the band which has led to these last two albums encore and then the protest songs cover versions of songs stretching way back into the early 20th century um, and, and, and uh, up to up to recent times. Um, but actually, obviously, the songwriting blossomed both with Fun Boy 3, where his lyrics were prominent and um, such songs as We're Having All the Fun and uh, the song about um, where Lunatics he was... Lunatics over the Asylum. Yeah, the Lunatics are taken over the Asylum. Also the song of... Um, where, where he was effectively kidnapped uh, by a paedophile gang and the teacher raped him when, when he was uh, supposed to be going to France to, to, for, for an educational trip. That's something that damaged him for the rest of his life, a depression, a problem that he had for the rest of his life rooted in that song. And, um, and likewise, of course, Come the Colourfield, again, lovely, lovely songwriting with that. And uh, it, it, the contrast, if you like, between... For all the, the me melodic impact of special songs, but he ended up as a, in many ways, if you look at the other side of him, as a romantic, uh, be it the songs in the color field, be it the songs later on with, with Terry Blair and Anushka, writing songs then with Dave Stewart when they joined together in Vegas, and then choices of cover versions, of which I recall God Only Knows being sung by him with cello and violin accompaniment at the Duchess in Leeds. And Terry was so moved by his own performance. And I think mm. and this it wasn't a vain thing on his part. I think it was it, he was struck by just, again, how beautiful that song was and how he interpreted it, that it kind of moved him to tears even performing that. And I know it might be cheesy to sort of refer to uh, all kinds of everything, a song that was the Dana song, wasn't it? And yeah, but yeah. his version with... Sinead O'Connor on a Eurovision tribute album, cover versions album. Again, that voice had a beautiful romance to it, a sad, melancholic romance to it, which obviously, again, was part of the dead, the deadbeat, deadpan side of him. But the, roman the, the romantic in him kept fighting with the, the, the more negative side uh, that depicted a world of Saturday, Saturday night culture. And suited so strongly those the, the, the special songs and the political songs of Fun Boy 3. Graham, when, when would you yeah. have seen him in concert? <laughs> That's a good question. I did once bump into him at Dublin Airport, and, and it was partly... <laughs> as you, as you do, day. you have a habit of doing this. <laughs> yeah, I, no, I do. I do. I'm always bumping at people. But uh, and, and it was because of him that partly I didn't spend the night sleeping in a stairwell in a bad part of Dublin, because... I'd been in a stag weekend with 26 Halifax policemen uh, with, a, with a close friend, and I'd got separated from the party at the start of the night. And mm. uh, got up to various shenanigans and ended up completely lost with no idea what my hotel was called or <laughs> where it was. So I kept on, well, 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 various things happened, but then I kept on walking, ended up in a tower block of flats with IRA graffiti all over it. And I was mm. about to sleep on the floor in this concrete cellar. And I thought, no, this is just stupid. So I got back out and started walking again. I bumped into two young guys yeah. who'd just been to see Blur play Dublin Stadium, oh. supported by Terry Hall. And those guys were brilliant. They, they managed to work out what my hotel was, where it was, yeah. and walk me all the way back to the hotel. That's like saving my bacon. And then the very next day, as I'm flying back with the 26 Halifax policemen, walking yeah. to Dublin Airport for the plane, there's Terry Hall. And I had a quick <laughs> chat. 
and joined the uh, the policeman with me. Yeah, I've got a couple of of, of, of memories. One was um, he was playing playing solo as and uh, this was in Leeds, and Leeds were playing Leeds United were playing that. Of course, he is a uh, a Manchester United um, well. Passionately devoted to his Manchester United and loved winding up Leeds United fans, and Leeds were losing against Mansfield in a League Cup game, and he took great glee as he came on to announce. Say again, Graham. Why didn't he support Coventry? Well, like so many people who, for some reason, choose to support Manchester United run their local club, you'd have to ask him Mm. that. Jeff Boycott. Dear, dear. South Yorkshireman, Manchester United fan. We could the list goes on, Graham. Anyway, Good so point, he started the game. <laughs> and he announced what the final score was between Leeds losing at home to Man. Well, oh. home or away, one 0 in the League Cup to Mansfield, and he absolutely was just winding the fans up and the great glee in his face at that point. And I thought, mm. yeah, fair play, fair play, Terry, taking that risk in Leeds. You know, uh. but it, it was at the Irish Centre. Probably it was a bit safer. But the other one was. When the specials played the first of their two more recent uh, performances in 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 in, uh, in York, which was at the Barbican, and re- towards the end of the gig, he apologised, saying, "Sorry, I've I've been feeling really shit all gig." And he, the fact that he apologised for that was it was it was a revelation that the depression could take him at, at any time, and that he'd been struggling through that gig, and that was a reminder of the vulnerability that was that was there in him, and yet, and yet. He would still go ahead with the performance for all that and be frank enough to tell the audience how he was feeling and to apologise for it, which he didn't need an apology for in the way that uh, it just, it, but it told you, you know, the full the full picture of the of the man that he that he did that. And it was as much a, probably an apology to his bandmates as well that he'd been in a, what he, what he saw as being in a, a, a difficult mood all night. And yet he, he still pulled out a, a wonderful finale to it. It wasn't a case of pulling himself together. It wasn't like that. It was obviously... He just felt it for better for saying why he'd been behaving as he had during the gig. Well, he, he was a very honest performer, and he, he, he was mm. a performer without artifice. Absolutely. As frontman go, it, he was one of the sort of like least showy, offy frontmen. Yeah. possibly. Yeah. But, but he was very good, very good at being a frontman without having to do any of the tricks that all the rest of the good frontmen usually do. Yeah, I mean, contrast him with Kevin Rowland, for example, from the from exactly the same era. Very different performance mm. style. Well, yeah, very different ego. I mean, Ke- Ke- Kevin had an it. ego in spades, and uh, <laughs> yeah. Terry's ego was probably slightly smaller. Yeah. Which is a, I mean, you know, I'm a, I, I, I love Dex's concert performances as 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 much as I enjoyed the special. But um, so we say thank you, Terry, and farewell. But the songs, of course, always live on, and 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 I've been. As the strange thing that one does when somebody plays a great bulk of the songs when someone dies, just to remind yourself of the the, the, the range that he did. And as I say, it wasn't just about the specials. Maybe the, the largely the coverage has been about the specials, but I think that's to to underplay the significance of his other performances and these other bands, and even his version of Sense, the the Ian Brody Lightning Seeds number that he did, the way he he performed that for me. It's the better version of the two, and that's the kind of thing that he did. That the way that he sang that 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 voice, um, with that as I say, that melancholic romantic side to it. Uh, well, I tell you, what, unless unless Jerry Dammers gets involved, the specials are probably uh, a bit of a non-starter now. That's going to be interesting. Whether he, whether Linville, 
whether Neville Staple, who was due to work with Terry in uh, 2023, they'd been talking about doing a project together, whether this actually is the moment where to keep the specials going, because there's no Roddy Reddy radiation, there's no John Bradbury involved anymore, whether actually Jerry finally at this point decides to get involved and maybe Neville comes back because Terry's is gone and yet, yet you'd want to keep the, the history going. That's going to be interesting to watch what happens this year. Let's let's I, see. What I think happens. it should, but you, you should do the whole history of the band, including in the studio, because in the studio is a brilliant album. It is. It is. But I, I suspect he might not want to because I agree with you. Like he's he's, he's much happier doing his own, his own his own special orchestra stuff, isn't he? So um, it may well be that Jerry Dammers, you know, that's it's that boat has, has sailed. Maybe maybe Neville's more likely to get involved again. Maybe that's what's what could could happen. I so Graham, call just, him Je- Jeffrey Dammer, which obviously is uh, that was unfortunate terrible. when you said that the other day. I couldn't quite believe that you did that, but we'll we we we'll draw a he, he'd, be a, he'd be a terrible addition to any band. <laughs> he certainly will. He certainly will. Now, Graham, um, this has been a year where music books. There's been an absolute glut of them. Unbelievable, more yeah. than ever. Explosion, From Jarvis explosion. Cocker to to Bono to Bob Dylan to let me think. Who else has brought? Uh, who else has brought the one? Uh, basically, basically, basically quite right. It's basically a great band. Everybody has has, has uh, in, in music. They're they're the, the most familiar. But you you've looked at a couple of music autobiographies. One by yeah. Barbara Sharon, who I know and you will know journalistically because she handles publicity for big big bands that occasionally one gets to write about, and it's always through Barbara that one that would get the access, her book, Access All Areas. And then the second, A Likely Lad by Pete or Peter Doherty. And um, they maybe are ones, I'm not saying they've gone un, under the um, under the radar by comparison with the, the, the three that I've mentioned, but nevertheless, um, lesser, perhaps lesser, lesser fuss a, a, around them. So if you may, compare and contrast these two books. Well, I like the lad, which was done through interviews with Simon Spence, uh, the Pete Dotted autobiography on Little yes. Brown. It's quite similar in some ways to Barbara Sharon's Access to Hilarious, which is mm. on White Rabbit Books, that offshoot mm. of Lee Braxton at Faber and Faber. And they both name drop through rock history like mm. no people on earth. They know everybody, <laughs> they've met everybody, they've done things for everybody. I mean, Barbara Sharon has... You know, personal dinners, intimate nights out with Keith Richards, Michael Stipe, Madonna, Rufus mm. Wainwright, Elvis Costello, you name it. Pete Doherty knows everybody, meets everybody, and they've both got a crossover in Keith Richards. He's, he's met Keith Richards a couple of times as Pete, and yeah. Keith's tried to, like, take him under his wing a bit and give him advice because Keith appeared to be quite concerned about Pete's drug intake. And I... <laughs> Can you imagine Keith being concerned about someone's drug intake? <laughs> So, so they've got a crossover there, and, and of course, Pete name drops Kate Moss and inevitably Amy Winehouse and Bobby yeah. Gillespie, and yeah. you know a- anybody can. But the difference between the two books is that they're, they're, it's like high and low gutter, mm. and 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 the, and the expensive seats because Pete Doherty is right at the bottom. It's a real grubby book. He's real. He seems mm. to love living at street level and always been in scrapes. Mm. And always being in trouble, and always getting arrested, and always taking drugs. He he he, he, he makes Keith Richards look like Mary Berry. That's how bad he is. It's quite, it's quite his behaviour is quite shocking. It's much worse than you suspect. Yeah. Whereas Barbara Sharon, although she admits to 
cocaine and alcohol over very you know over many years in her mm. in her role as an award winning journalist music journalist and then an award winning public relations officer. Mm. Mm. She she he he's like Oliver Twist, a bit sort of naughty, street level, and she's like Prince Charming or Princess Charming. Everything <laughs> goes well. Her her disasters are are tiny compared to Pete Doherty's disasters, where mm. his his disasters are true disasters. And it's like it's real chalk and cheese in in their attitudes, and she just loves everybody, and 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 she comes across really well, except she starts to doubt her opinions of people. So for example, she likes Ken Bates. She was a chum with Ken Bates. The, Ex Chelsea chairman. I mean, ex ex ruiner of Leeds United. Yeah. Well, yeah. How, how, is Ken Bates a nice guy? I don't think. Could be wrong. <laughs> she likes the son's Dominic Mohan, or what his name is. I mean, again, yeah. like, is, is he a nice guy? I don't know. She seems to like everybody, and and she seems she doesn't seem to mind being super nice to all these stars like Madonna, even when they treat her badly. Whereas Pete it... has no. <laughs> Pete doesn't grovel to anybody. No. Pete. Pete Pete could not give a rat's arse about fitting in or doing the right thing. So even though they've got similarities, they're, they're very, very different. But, but both of them make great films, but very different great films. I think I like what they end up being like with Neil and I. How much is there a contrast between, let's say that, I'm assuming that Barbara Sharon, reliable witness, Pete Doherty, unreliable witness? Well, he likes to tell tales. Like, he used to go about saying that he'd read... Rambo, and I don't mean Rambo, the uh, yeah, you know, the Schwarzenegger, the uh, Arnie, mm. the, the Stallone thing, when he hadn't. So he does like he does like the myths and legends of things. He's very romantic, mm. but you can't trust him because he also makes himself look bad. So if he was making himself look good the whole time, you'd think, women, I, I don't believe half the stuff. But he's happy to make himself look bad. And the ironic thing is that although he spends most of his time getting it all wrong by taking way too many drugs. His productivity is huge. He's, he's actually had more hits for Baby Shambles than Libertine's managed. And during yep. the whole thing, he's been a successful artist. He's done loads of solo work as well as Libertine's. So you're thinking like, this guy's such a mess, but wait a minute, <laughs> he's, he's actually quite productive. So you end up thinking like, how's he, how's, he, how's he pulling this off? It's quite phenomenal. Whereas Barbara Sharon's just a professional. You know, she's just like, she will always be good at her job. She will yeah. always love the stars. She will always love music. She's like that kid in that almost famous film that the young guy that John's Rolling Stone oh yeah oh yes yes <laughs> taken under the wing by uh, Lester Bangs she's like a yeah. grown up version of that so I mean, it's, it's, it. it's it's a very different role obviously if, when you're doing the public relations you need to get on with the stars and you also need to get on with the journalists and there are times when you want the journalists to be on your side and there are times maybe when you want to close down and shield information and, and not reveal. How much is that part of her story as well, where journalists are demanding information and she actually can't give it because the bands don't want it to be given? And well, is that so, best, does she address that side of the, of the challenge of her job? The best spin is a spin you believe. So the thing about Barbara is that she's a genuine fan. She genuinely mm. loves the music and she genuinely loves all these famous musicians. Mm. So she's very protective of them. So So when she overlooks the bad sides to project the good sides. Mm. It's not from a cynical PR person's point of view. It's from a fan's point of view. Yes. She wants people that she thinks they're brilliant. Yeah. I personally would never want to be. <laughs> I personally like call a spade a spade a bit, so I probably yeah. wouldn't be so good at PR as she is, even <laughs> in the music business. But 
you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she, she's not. It's, it's not an act of deceit in her part because no. she believes in these people completely. Yeah, and that's interesting because I, the, the, I mean, that actually is not necessarily typical. Although it's kind of has to go with the territory that who you're selling, you've got to believe in their product. But there must be times mm. when that's not easy to do. But she's obviously been remarkably loyal to all those. But they are the biggest names, and she's dealt with always the big, the biggest names that uh, in, in, in rock. Um, I mean, how much also in her case though? It wouldn't make sense to fall out, would it? You just didn't want to lose them as clients. She wouldn't, you know, so that's not in her interest to do that. No, no, she's she's obviously she's professional. I mean, Americans are born professional, unless deliberately trying to be dropouts like Kurt Cobain. So yeah, yeah she, she she knows it's in her interest, and she's very professional. So mm. yeah, I, yeah, she's not. I'm, I'm not saying she's she's not naive or innocent. No, 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 I'm, no, I'm, no. Just, I'm just I'm just saying that her positive nature towards the whole thing <clears throat> helps her achieve professional objectives. Yeah. I mean, does it live up to its title, Access All Areas? Is this more revelatory than it might otherwise be? Is it Access no, All, she, all she, Areas? No, this is another thing. She, she's very loyal to all the musicians that she's written about, reviewed, or represented. So you don't get much in the way of, like, negative anecdotes about them. There's little tiny snippets, little slithers, of negative bits about various famous people, but in general, very, very little. She's very, very loyal to them. And so it, it feels to me like either she hasn't noticed all the bad sides of these stars, or she's got locked away in a large safe, a gigantic book of what really happened. <laughs> what did you learn of Pete Doherty that um, was most revealing about him? Well, first of all, his, his ability to like, put himself in harm's way for his calling towards drugs and debauchery yeah. and spontaneity. He loves spontaneity, a bit like Sid Barrett didn't like mm. being a conventional rock star, mm. which is why he went off the rails with Pink Floyd. He peaked from the very beginning. As soon as, as soon as Libertines got anywhere near being big, he wanted to sabotage it. He wanted to have a real rock and roll, raucous, spontaneous, you know, free liberal... Mm. way of being a rock band. He didn't like being a professional band on the treadmill from the very beginning. No. So that was interesting. Another thing is that quite often people around him have died, a bit like people around the Stones have died, of drug yes. overdose and yeah. drug-related deaths. A lot of people have died around him. And he's occasionally been blamed by relatives for having caused these, these people's death by getting them involved with his circle of drug-taking and mm. you know bad behaviour. And he... he he seemed he comes across as a nice guy in the book, but he always rejects any accusation that he's in any way to blame for anybody else's behaviour. But is that really true? I mean, if you're going to live that sort of life and get and encourage other people to be involved with it as well, and things go wrong, are, are you really blameless? But he, he he can't he doesn't face that idea whatsoever. That that, that doesn't come across. He's quite confident that his approach to life. You know, like if he's like, he would argue uh, that it's self self inflicted on him, but not inflicted on others. Yeah, that's exactly uh, it. That's that's. It's an argument. individual choice, like which I suppose, again, you know, the the Amy Winehouse and her her, her boyfriend, uh, that that relationship where people tend to look at it and say, you know, how much was she damaged ultimately by that relationship, or how much was it, mm. it was her own choice to do what she did. 
And there'll be two versions of that story, always. Yeah, well, he, he, he liked Amy Winehouse, and they did, they did occasionally, like, jam together and sing together mm. and stuff. And he, he, he actually wanted to work with her, but I think even he found her, her lifestyle just too much of a mess mm. For, mm. for him to, like, do much <laughs> with her. That's that's saying something. <laughs> but but they were both into drugs early on. They, they, they yes. were both made made to behave like this from an early age. They weren't. Mm. It wasn't just a lifestyle choice. There was no. there was there's some demons. He was he was an army an army dad's son. He was, always yeah, getting we, moved. Yeah. With a with a dad who was very very critical of him the whole time, and yeah. quite frankly not supportive at all. No. In any way. Mm. Uh, so. I think they both had demons early on from their family backgrounds. Yeah. Yeah. So the title, last thing to ask you about, Likely Lad, running into the last minute here. Why is it called The Likely well, Lad? It's a, it's a track from the Libertine's second album, Where We're Having Likely Lad, which, which of course is from a TV series. He's a big Tony Hancock fan, by the way. He's is got he? a real interesting range of cultural reference points, as Pete mm. Doherty. Much wider and more uh, quirky than you'd imagine. He absolutely loves Tony Hancock. You've been listening to the podcast Two Big Egos in a Small Car. Your hosts were Graham Chalmers and Charles Hutchinson. This was a Baltic sub-production.